listening to Vernacular Archives on the Bright Archives podcast. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm David Bernabo. Today we're talking with Era Tanzi. My name is Era Tanzi, and I am an archivist and a researcher, and I live in Cincinnati, but I also often identify myself as being a resident of the Ohio River watershed. Era works in an emerging area of the archives profession, the impact of climate change on our cultural heritage. For years, she worked in universities, but recently she left to start her own company. Yes, so I spent the first 15 years of my career in academic libraries, working as an archivist. I left earlier this year to start my own company, which is called Memory Rising, and that started uh, in May. So in Memory Rising, I work as a consultant, researcher, archivist for hire, Most of my expertise is around environmental issues, climate change, but I also have a lot of interests and some work experience in documenting labor movements, and I'm also very interested in Ohio Valley history. I grew up in Cincinnati and have been back there for 10 years, and it's where I call home, so I'm very interested in the history of, of my home. So this is the first episode of Vernacular Archives, where we talk with people who inspire us to think about preservation differently and create collections grounded in people and place. Era recently published a report with the Council on Library and Information Resources called A Green New Deal for Archives. It's one of the first comprehensive looks at what we need to do to protect our archives and cultural heritage. I know I'm always quick to think about the big picture items related to climate change, like rising oceans, methane leaks, natural disasters, droughts, and a shifting food supply. But climate change also puts the artworks and cultural objects in our archives and museums at risk of damage and permanent loss. Era is one of the few archivists looking into this area, and we talk with her about some of the surprising issues preventing us from taking more steps to protect these objects. So why, why did you choose to focus on the impact of climate change, specifically through like a cultural heritage lens? Several years ago, I was thinking, hmm, archivists are in some ways in the business of the future. We are preserving the materials of the past for future use. And if we know that climate change is one of the big issues, not just of our future, but also of our present, what archivists are working on this? And I was working, again, in academic libraries at the time, so I had lots of access to research databases, and I start looking into this using the skills I have as a librarian to search for information, and I can't find very much at all. I'm like, how, how are people that are worried about the future not talking about one of the most omnipresent issues that is impacting not only those of us who work in the United States, but around the world. And so I was just astonished that there was very little at the time I started looking written about it. So I started writing in that area. There was one archivist whose work was really influential on my own, and he's an Australian archivist named Matthew Gordon Clark. Matthew Gordon Clark had written a couple of articles about Pacific Island National Archives, and asking, well, these are some of the most vulnerable areas in the world to sea level rise. 
And so if their populations become displaced, what happens to their archives? Do their archives get transferred to another nation? What does the access to that look like? And so I've started thinking about some of what that looks like in the United States. So over the last several years, I've had a number of articles, research studies, a publication now that is about climate change impacts to archives in the United States. Well, that's fascinating. So it sounds like there aren't many archivists looking into the the records related to climate change. And I know archives is a very small profession. According to recent surveys, there are only about 10,000 of us in the U.S. It's a very, very small profession. But why do you think many of us aren't looking into this this area? What I have noticed is that there aren't many climate change deniers within the archives community. So archivists are very educated. Um, we care a lot about the world and the communities that we serve in. So there isn't a problem of like climate change denial within the archivist profession. But I think one of the endemic issues for archivists is that very, very few institutions, even fairly well-funded institutions, have enough archivists on staff. And that leads to a cycle where you have people who are putting out fires every day. Hopefully they're usually metaphorical fires, not actual fires. But you have people who are putting putting out fires uh, every day. They're constantly in triage mode. It makes it very difficult to plan for the future. I think that's one of the big challenges is because archives are so understaffed, people don't even have the ability to step back take a pause and think, okay, wait, if my archive is in a flood zone or we're near what could be a future flood zone because this area that never used to flood is starting to flood more, and if we're in a budget crunch and we've been told that we're never going to get a new facility in the next 10 years, how do I even start to address this? And so I think archivists know that it's an issue and, and there are more people working on this issue now than when I started several years ago. But there are a lot of capacity issues that I think exist across all parts of the profession that make it very difficult for people to act in the way that they know they should act. I'm wondering, too, if, uh, you know, most archivists work for institutions like universities or government agencies, if part of what is factoring into this is some of these records are probably held by organizations that don't necessarily have an archivist. Do you run into that issue in your work? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I talk about a lot in my work is looking at issues of understaffing have existed for a very long time in archives, but in many places they're getting worse. We see this especially within state archives and state government. If you read reports from, there's an organization called COSA, which stands for the Council of State Archivists. And this is the representative body of state archivists and uh, also territorial archivists. And they put out these reports every, every few years. I think it's every two years where they talk about the holdings of state archives, how many staff they have. And if you look at these reports, the staffing levels at best in most places, are remaining steady. But in many places in the country, populations are growing. That means more record keeping that is happening. And so even if 
at best, your staff's situation is stable, you're having more and more records come in that you can't keep up with. And then there are a lot of places that are losing staff. And as you said, there are many places that don't even have an archivist on staff to begin with. So in my city of Cincinnati, we do not have a municipal archive. And I know I know in Pittsburgh, that's a fairly recent development. I remember when it started, it was at some point when I had entered the profession and Pittsburgh said, we've hired our first city archivist. Yeah, right around 2016, 2017, Nick Hartley was hired as the first archivist for the city of Pittsburgh. And recently, he and his team released a new digital collection where they digitized thousands of items from the city archives that you can access online. But we don't have that in the city of Cincinnati, and and lots of other cities do. So I think Cleveland has one, Louisville has one, Pittsburgh has one. But the city of Cincinnati, which is a major Midwestern city, doesn't have a municipal archive. Obviously, the archival records exist, but they're being stewarded by someone who is not an archivist, right? It's I believe it's the clerk of city council. So that has a lot of implications, because when you have archival records They're being cared for by people who aren't archivists. Sometimes that means they don't bring the same lens of accessibility and preservation to the work of caring for those records that archivists are trained and socialized to prioritize. So yeah, I think that's one of the big problems we see with um, where archives might be endangered with climate changes. Do we even know where some of those records are? Who is caring for them? What is the current condition and status of those archives? We are starting to have more information about that, but not as much as I think we need from a profession-wide standpoint. So it seems like there there are two ways to look at this. On the one hand, as the archives profession begins to think about what is the impact of climate change on these repositories. We need to have disaster plans in place. Think about long-term preservation in light of current and future environmental conditions. On the other hand, we should be thinking about what kind of records should we be identifying but also collecting that can help us learn more about climate change over time. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. What kinds of records are significant for us to think about or important for us to think about as we try to get a handle on the impact that climate change is having on our different locales, our cities, our neighborhoods, our regions. When you ask that question, one of the things I think about are photographs of glaciers. So there's some archives that have photographs of glaciers that have existed in various parts of the world. And scientists will often look at those images, you know, that might be over 100 years old at this point of glaciers to measure sort of what is the loss of glaciers over time. Glaciers are these, you know, amazing phenomena, but there's also lots of other less photogenic, I don't know, I don't know what word I'm looking for, images that I think are really useful to look at. You know, one of the things I think in a, in a city like um, Cincinnati or, or Pittsburgh, where they're very hilly cities, I always think looking at those images of what hills have been wooded and which have not over time are really interesting to me as someone who's also interested in environmental history and, and land management, because 
areas that have been wooded and then are you know, have the woods removed, those can be more vulnerable to erosion, right? And in a place like the Midwest, where, you know, we're not, at least yet, (laughs) dealing with wildfires or other things, but we are dealing with more frequent and severe rainstorms, right? And when you live in a hilly city, you don't want a landslide happening anywhere. When I think about the types of archives that I think can really help illustrate environmental change for people, I think of the usefulness of images. And even if they're just, you know, urban planning images that are taken by city departments, you know, documenting like new street signs or whatever that they're putting into place, there's so much environmental information that you can understand from those photographs that sometimes we don't even realize at the time their usefulness. You gave a wonderful lecture at the University of Pittsburgh yesterday where you talked about some of these issues. Um, And you mentioned that sometimes, often, it is difficult to get access to these records, even if they're public. I was wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. I think the example that you're probably talking about is thinking about environmental regulation records the whole paradigm of environmental regulation in the United States often revolves around permitting. So if there's a industry that might be contributing to air pollution or discharging something into waterways, they typically have to have some kind of permit to do so. Now that said, there are a lot of loopholes with permitting infrastructures. So sometimes activities that should require a permit are are not always having to disclose the amount of information that we might want. But permitting information, at least in the state of Ohio where I live, is available online through the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency website. That said, there is a challenge of making that information understandable to the average person. So you can access, for example, you know, the permitting information for a large petrochemical complex that is being built on the Ohio River. Now, if you're the average person that doesn't have a chemistry background or a hydrology background or an engineering background, can you understand that information? Probably not. There's a concept that researchers call information asymmetry, which is when a party has information about a topic, but another party doesn't. The party without access to that information cannot always make decisions in the most informed way possible because there is an information asymmetry. So you might argue that it might not seem like there's an information asymmetry because, hey, the permits are out there. If anyone's concerned about it, they can go onto a website, look, see it. You know, we're not hiding anything. But can the average person understand what is in these permits? And that's where I think there's some real concern from myself as an archivist, which is it's not just enough to make to put the information out there if you are not translating it into something that is understandable by the general public, that can contribute to an atmosphere of cynicism and suspicion where people say, you know, you're telling me I can access this information, but I don't understand what I'm looking at. And I don't understand what this means for the health of my community, for the safety of my drinking water, for my children's health. And that's, not the ideal way to do environmental protection, in my opinion. How you mentioned earlier that archivists 
we're kind of trained to think about access, you know, broad access to records and information. I'm wondering if that's a role that archivists can play moving forward in terms of making sure this information is readable by a general audience. Do you think that's the case? I would hope so. I think that there are some larger issues related to, you know, environmental legislation and what we require in the information related to that. Something that some government agencies use, which is known as plain language, and plain language is this idea that government information should be communicated at a certain level so that it's understandable to most people, regardless of their education or or literacy levels. So I think there are some ways in which we have to make information more understandable that might be outside of the jurisdiction of archivists. But when I think about the types of institutions that are the most transparent, that make information widely available, and that care about preserving the information for the future, those are institutions that often have archivists in them. So there's also a policy perspective here, too, which is that, again, going back to this idea of like municipal governments and state governments, if these are entities where we're not prioritizing the hiring and retention of archivists, it's not clear to me how we are also taking the issue of communicating information seriously, because archivists, we're not the only information professionals out there. There are lots of information professionals that are not archivists, but archivists are unique in that we prioritize the accessibility and the preservation of information. Lots of organizations prioritize preservation, lots prioritize accessibility, but I think we are really the group of professionals that recognize that both of those are intrinsically linked. So if we're not supporting archivists, then I think we have some issues with accountability. I love that idea. I think it's fascinating how you describe that. You know, we kind of have a a foot on each side, both on preservation and making information accessible to a general audience. And I often think or observed that archivists play this a key role in the information environment, right? Information comes into a repository, we preserve it, but we're also that bridge to other professions who access that information and then distribute it to the public. So I'm thinking of journalists, documentary filmmakers, folks who work in creative media, historians. They're the the folks who allow this information to enter the public memory and the public consciousness, becomes part of the historical record, so to speak, the historical memory, and it enters into a more national conversation. But if you don't have that bridge, if archivists aren't there to be providing that broad access, that cycle starts to break down and you lose access to key pieces of information, and those folks can't do their jobs. If I could set a single priority for the American archives profession, it would be helping people learn to advocate not just for the particular archive they work at, but for the larger archival record. That looks like a lot of different things. And I I don't know that the general public realizes how much archival concerns are connected to lots of everyday things. So for example, I have a friend who is also connected to Society of American Archivists, which is the major professional association for archivists. And SAA does do a lot of public policy and advocacy work. And this friend said to me the other day, she said, you know, I'd I'd really like to see archivists get involved with the right to repair movement. And the right to repair movement is this idea that 
there's a lot of proprietary technology now. One of the most famous examples is John Deere tractors. And so if you want to fix your tractor, you have to bring it in to an authorized dealer. You can't just do what, you know, your your farming predecessors did with just fixing the tractor and, you know, your barn. And I said, okay, help me understand the connection between archivists and the right to repair movement. And she pointed out, well, now that archivists are dealing with so much born digital content, so things that have been created in a computing environment, they've never existed on paper, a tangible material. So many of those devices that we're going to need to access in the future could have proprietary lockdowns and make it difficult for us to do that digital preservation work unless we have a right to repair doctrine in US law. And I was like, oh, wow, that like, I'm always the person that is making weird connections with things, but having someone else be like, no, here's the connection here. So that's that's a way in which I think archivists, we think, oh, they're just a bunch of people who, like, work with old Civil War diaries. And no, there's actually a lot of um, current day information infrastructure interests we have. There's other more obvious examples, right, like freedom of information laws. You know, there's the National Freedom of Information Act, but every state also has a version of its own freedom of information law. And they go by different names. In Ohio, we call it the Sunshine Law. Other states call it FOIL, Freedom of Information Law. A lot of those laws are getting watered down. They're getting very watered down. There um, some states that have had some of the best freedom of information laws in the country are, are having those laws steadily weakened. And I think archivists are a group, much like librarians, that when people do know about the work that we do, like they are often our fiercest advocates. Like I only occasionally meet people who are like, oh, that archivist was a real jerk to me. And oftentimes they are a historian with a bone to pick with an archivist. But most people who know archivists really like us, and they are often um, great allies. And also, I think people don't quite realize how many archival implications of information and the world at large, how, how much of that impacts our work. That phrase she uses, archival implications, kind of like in our everyday lives, so interesting because yeah I agree archives show up in our everyday lives in unexpected ways but mostly in the background yeah yeah I I usually see it in books I guess that I read um, I'm currently reading a book called Ingredients for Revolution by Alex D. Ketchum about American feminist restaurants and cafes in the 1970s and much of the information collected in the book comes from archives it's kind of an interesting parallel too because it's a book that's in part about how the work of organizing and building places that are welcoming of different political perspectives uh, liberal political perspectives mainly uh, wasn't terribly visible so it's interesting to think about how the labor that goes into preserving remnants from these vegetarian often collectively owned restaurants also isn't very visible oh that's so interesting it's like a uh, invisible labor making invisible labor more visible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Say that ten times. Yeah. Fast. <laughs> but like the the somewhat invisible nature of archivists has a huge impact on what we do and also the resources we have access to. So Era got into this a little bit. I talked to her about um, her new publication, A Green New Deal for Archives, where she 
digs into how labor issues are impacting what archivists can do to actually respond to the climate crisis and kind of meet the challenges that are coming up. Green New Deal for Archives really started out of my twin interests in climate change and labor issues. And the argument I make in A Green New Deal for Archives is that we as archivists cannot address the climate crisis without also addressing our crisis of workforce issues. So within the archivist profession, which, as you stated before, has a fairly small number of archivist practitioners in the United States, even within that, there's a lot of labor inequities in our field. So much like academia and some other fields, there's been a lot of precarity imposed upon archivist jobs in the last few years. So it's not uncommon for early career archivists to have a string of one-year, two-year, three-year positions. A lot of archivist salaries are pretty bad, considering the level of education in many settings you're required to have to be a professional archivist. And so there are lots of studies coming out within our field that document levels of burnout, people leaving the field. I've been in the field for about 15 years. And when I think about my professional cohort that you know I would see at conferences when I was just starting out, I would guess easily half of them have left the field by now. And that has a lot of implications both for the people who are leading archival institutions right now, but also people entering the field. So when I take a step back and think about what we need for climate change preparedness in archives, I think, well, we need enough archivists on staff to make sure that we're processing materials, making them accessible to the public, not accumulating these large backlogs of material. And a backlog is material that an archive has taken in, but has not yet processed in order to make it easily accessible to researchers. And most archives have some degree of issues with backlogs because most archives just don't have enough archivists on staff. So if we're thinking about climate change prep, okay, we need enough archivists to reduce our backlogs because having a natural disaster hit your archive when you have a bunch of unprocessed material is a nightmare. We need enough archivists on hand who can also help with disaster preparedness, making these vital connections with emergency management officials. And we need enough archivists on staff who are also looking at these issues of how do we document you know, the changing environment around us, the changing climate, so that our archives are representative of this large issue affecting everywhere in the world. How is it impacting us locally? Now, how do you do that when you're down several staff members over the last few years? And so Green New Deal for Archives is this major, I call it speculative public policy, right? We have speculative fiction. So I was like, okay, if I was given free reign to you know, enter this government agency that now has a Green New Deal as its mandate, what would I write for saying, here's what we do? And the first thing I identifies we have to stop the bleeding with the archivist workforce because if we cannot get control of our workforce situation, we are 
doubly vulnerable to climate change. We're already vulnerable, but we will keep being more vulnerable without the archivists to steward these collections that, that need protection. And just to add a little bit more about this, one of the major arguments I also make in a Green New Deal for archives is that everything I was proposing in that has historical precedent. I don't like when I talk about things that people say, oh, that can never happen. I say, wait up, hold up a minute. Like there are things we have done before in the history of this country that would blow your mind. And where I locate some of the basis for these major investments in archival work is during the 1930s as part of the New Deal projects to put unemployed people back to work. There was this project called the Historical Records Survey. And the Historical Records Survey hired thousands of -of out-of-work people to go survey records across American counties. And they managed to survey about 90% of U.S. counties. I think at its peak, I'd have to go back and check my own work, but I think at its peak, it employed somewhere between 6,000 and 8,000 archivists which is almost as many as are working in repositories today. So if in the 1930s, during the Great Depression, when a quarter of the country was unemployed, we managed to hire thousands of people to do archives work, there's no reason why we can't do it again if we gather the political will to do it. That's fascinating. So it would essentially double the profession were we to simply do again what happened in the 1930s. That is really, really interesting. So I think a lot about labor issues related to archives myself. And one of the things I've noticed is when we struggle to explain what we do to our moms, our friends, and our family, right? I've been asked many times, around the Thanksgiving dinner table or, you know, having dinner with with friends or family. So what do you do? Archivists chronically struggle to answer this question. It becomes extremely uh, intimidating, right? If you can't answer that question for your mom, how are you going to advocate on the national political level that we need to in order to begin to grow our profession in any substantial way to tackle these larger issues like records related to climate change or the work I used to do at Carnegie Mellon University, which was look at fields like robotics and artificial intelligence and the rapid expansion of records and material related to these fields that are having a global impact on our daily lives. So what is our path forward? How do we go from struggling to to explain archives to our families to being able to to advocate on this national level that we really need to? Well, I'll, I'll answer the question that was sort of there, which is how I answer that question of what archivists do. What I always tell people is I say, if you go to Washington, D.C., and you want to go see the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, you go to the National Archives. And a lot of times people will say, oh, I've actually been there before. I've seen the Constitution. I say, great. Guess who works at archives? Archivists. And archivists are the people who take documents that are so important to our history and our understanding of who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. And they're the ones that make sure that those records are available for people like you to use in the future. It might not be anything as 
historically significant as the Declaration of Independence, but your state government, your university, maybe your church, all of these places have archival records. And hopefully they have an archivist there who is identifying what those are. So again, they can preserve them and make them accessible to you. I think that because so many people have been to Washington, D.C., they understand that there's a place where they can go see this important record of the founding of the U.S. And then when you connect it and say, yeah, there's a person behind that, like it didn't just magically show up in this giant rotunda with all these security guards in a special vault. There were people who worked for decades to ensure that you could see that when you visit Washington, D.C. I think that helps turn on the lights for people. And then they start thinking, oh, you know, I tried to research this project and I couldn't do it because no one knew where the records were. Someone said, oh, they might be in this one place, but there hasn't been anyone there to care for them for a long time. So I think if you, as you had stated earlier in your question, archivists have to learn to talk about our work to the general public. That's incredibly important. We have to learn to talk to elected officials about our work, which is scary, but Society of American Archivists has started to do some work on this. They, Society of American Archivists meets every four years in Washington, D.C., and when they meet in Washington, D.C., there's this event called Archives on the Hill, which is an advocacy event where you meet with your elected officials and talk about the importance of archives. And I did it this year for the first time. And I was a little bit apprehensive because there were some staff members of people in Congress, or in the Senate, I should say, that we don't see eye to eye. And I was a little bit apprehensive about those conversations because I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to come in here and it's going to be re- weird and awkward. And I was pleasantly surprised by how even someone, you know, I, I wasn't meeting with the senator, but I was meeting with their staff members and how receptive they were to the need for archives. Now, I think people will quibble about, you know, what's the appropriate level of funding, and that's fine. But no one I met with was like, why is that important? Everyone gets it. I think even where you might think that there's not common cause with folks when you talk about things like, you know, it's like the 250th anniversary of the United States is coming up and in a few years. And I think that can help mobilize things. Certainly, you know, during the bicentennial in 1976, this is one of the things I've been learning recently. During the 1976 bicentennial, there are actually a lot of public history and archives programs that started. So I feel like we're, I hope we can replicate some of that within the next few years. So are you feeling optimistic about the future of the archives profession? Like, what do you see happening in the next 10 years as we think about the impact of climate change and the changes that are going to happen in our environment? Are you optimistic about the future of the archives profession with those things in mind? I think I'm optimistic about archivists. I think it's too hard for me to predict what will happen in the environments that archivists work in. But I'm I'm very optimistic about archivists because I one of the reasons that I've remained an archivist for so long, even after I left institutional employment, 
working at a university and now working for myself, I still very much identify as an archivist, even though I don't have my hands in boxes every day. And that's because I think the professional community of archivists is just an unbelievable community. One of the things that I love about being an archivist is it's such a generous community. You know, even we, like we met because you sent me a LinkedIn request a couple of weeks ago and I didn't know you, but I said, oh, I'm going to be in Pittsburgh soon. Let's grab coffee. And here we are. I'm in your recording studio. And that is totally normal for archivists. We all know each other. We all know each other. And I went to Society of American Archivists this year for the first time in a few years. It was my first time back in person after the pandemic. And for me, it felt like a family reunion. I'm, I'm often very wary of the language of family within work, and especially when institutions that control your salary are the ones using that language. But for me, being in relationship with other archivists across the country, across all different types of institutions, I have a lot of faith in the community of archivists, but we just need other people to help us do the work that we're capable of. So what can other people be doing to support the work of archivists? Well, I think if there's a place where you think there should be an archivist, being an advocate for saying, you know what, we, we're we coming up on our 100-year anniversary, but we have all these records that are scattered somewhere, maybe we should hire an archivist to do that. So I think having other people talk about the work of archivists is, is often more powerful, right? Because archivists, like, where fish don't realize that the water around them is wet, right? And so people who are not archivists who benefit from our work are often our best advocates. And so if you are not an archivist, but you love archivists, being a real nerd and talking about how great archivists are and how much you love to use archives is one of the best things you can do for us. You know, librarians always talk about one of the best things you can do for public libraries is to go there and check out stuff because that helps with a very numbers-obsessed society, right? I think a lot of people don't realize one of the beautiful things about the American archives community is that most archives, now not all archives, but most archives do not require you to be an official historian. If you see something on the online database or catalog that seems cool and you want to see it in person, send them an email and find out how to do it. And nine out of 10, more than nine out of 10, 9.9 out of 10 archivists will be very happy to help set you up and have you see that because we want we preserve all of this material so that it can be used. So the best way that you can support our work is to use archives and then be a total nerd about it to everyone else because the more people realize how much we do for our communities, how much we do for democracy, how much we do for history, how much we do for engendering a love for the places that we call home, that is really powerful. And I think that helps other people realize how important it is to have archivists everywhere. I think like in my ideal world, I think like literally there would just be archivists everywhere. We like every every government would have tons of archivists on staff, every religious institution, every hospital, every every public school should have an archivist. Like every public school should have a library. Every public school should also have an archivist. So just imagine like how much more we could know about our history if we had more archivists.
Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. One of the main takeaways here seems to be that we need more archivists. Yeah, and part of the reason we created this vernacular archive series was to shine light on the many different people doing this work. If you want to check out A Green New Deal for Archives, it's available on the Council on Library and Information Resources website, clir.org. And you can find ERA at memoryrising.net. Thank you for listening to the Bright Archives podcast. This episode was produced by Catherine and Dave, and the sound design and music was made by Dave and the band Waterer. If you liked this episode, leave us a review. Or if you'd like to hear more about these topics, we'd love to hear from you. We do read the comments and reviews and use them to improve and make changes. If you'd like to hear us cover a particular topic related to meaningful archives, let us know. See you next time.